You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome, welcome everyone. Welcome to this edition of the Future of Asia podcast. Today, we're going to talk about getting ahead of the coronavirus, specifically saving lives and livelihoods in India. Uh, this is very relevant. India is a huge country, a population of 1.4 billion. Uh, it has been, has been on a growth trajectory up until recently, and I think we've started to see some very material impacts of coronavirus. Today, I am joined by Gautam Kumra, the managing partner of uh, uh, McKinsey in India, and Anu Madgavkar, who is a partner in McKinsey's Global Institute, based in India. Both of them have researched and done a lot of practical work in and around coronavirus in India recently. Let me start with a question to you, Gautam. What are the implications of COVID-19 pandemic for India, both in terms of lives and livelihoods? Thank you, Oliver. Um, as, as you all well know, I think uh, COVID-19 is the defining global health crisis of our times. And it's by far the greatest uh, humanitarian challenge that the world has faced since World War II. And I think it's fair to say that India has not been spared. I think India has moved pretty quickly, uh, implementing a pretty proactive uh, national lockdown. As you know, the government announced, uh, we are now in stage three of what is likely to be a seven-week lockdown with the goal of flattening the curve and really giving the country some time to prepare for possible eventualities. The last thing I'd say is the impact on business would be profound uh, and livelihoods would be profound. What would be interesting is the impact will vary a lot by sectors. On one hand, we hope to see some sectors that will hopefully rebound after a blip, perhaps pharmaceuticals, technology. There'll be others which have a very uncertain future, like financial services, because it depends on what happens to the real economy. And then there are others, like automotive and oil and gas, that I think are headed for a pretty difficult, uh, deep uh, recession and then a longer recovery. Thank you, Gotham. We're going to come back to some of that, but I, I, I'm, I'm quite keen also to get Anu into the conversation. Um, could you give us a little bit, Some those of us that are not in India, we see pictures on the news from India. Right, and some of them are actually quite scary, uh, to be honest. We see people trying to move between states. What does it feel like on the ground in India these days? So I think, uh, uh, Oliver, uh, you know, the picture in India poses many unique challenges, but also India has uh, uh, resilience and a whole set of, I would say, uh, really important strengths, right, which is uh, seeing us through as we speak on the ground. Uh, I think uh, from the perspective of challenges, it's clear that, uh, you know, a very large portion of our workforce, 80-85% potentially, are in the informal sector. Uh, and when production uh, and consumption comes to a grinding halt, as has been unavoidable in this lockdown, uh, you know, this segment is obviously uh, hugely distressed. And we've had, uh, you know, we've had many images, as you say, right, of daily wage workers and migrant workers who are stranded really without much livelihood. Uh, but on the other side, I think we have seen an enormous groundswell of 
support, organization, and capacity. In many of our cities, we've seen government entities coming together with private sector and social sector entities to really provide uh, to the best that we can to really gear up uh, to help support these distressed communities and also uh, do what we need to do to help gear up the public health system, uh, you know, the quarantine system, the isolation system, the hospitals. Uh, so I think we are working actually at a level of alignment and organization that is commendable. Uh, and in that sense, the crisis has brought out the best in, in, in I think, many Indians. Uh, we, are, we are, of course, clear-eyed about the risks and potential uncertainties for the economy that lie ahead. Uh, but with this kind of sort of trilateral effort across government, private sector, and social sector, we do believe that some of these challenges can be faced. Thank you, Anu. So, uh, Gautam, anything to add? What does it feel like on the ground in India now? Well, look, at, at a very personal level, Oliver, I think as we are going through one of the strictest lockdowns that I think any has been seen in the world, uh, I think the country has been divided, uh, as you might have heard, between uh, red, orange, and green zones. And uh, if, I think, and further, not just at the level of 700 districts, but also within certain districts, certain zones have been put into containment zones. So depending on where one is living, I think if you happen to be living in one of the containment zones, you know, you are... You know, you can't even step out to get groceries and even that is being delivered to you at your doorsteps. If you happen to be living in one of the green zones, uh, which interestingly, uh, well, as of last week, I was in an orange zone. As of today, I'm in a red zone. So things change all the time. Uh, but uh, uh, so depending on, uh, you know, if you are in the orange zone, uh, you know, there are certain, at a personal level, you have the liberty to do certain things. You could go out to the grocery shop. You can access some of the individual uh, if you will, retailers that have been uh, allowed to keep open. So that's what it feels like on the ground. Uh, I think uh, to Anu's point, the other thing, it is a little disconcerting when you see lots of people do see on the streets, I think uh, because the migrant labor challenge has been hard to manage. And uh, I think that is distressing. Uh, to do, you do find that uh, real discussion around livelihood is, is there for you to see when you even take, uh, take your car on the streets and you see people sitting on the sides you know, who have been abandoned and uh, looking to get food for the day. And, and let's, building on that, you know, you've been analyzing various scenarios. What could the potential impact of the lockdown be on the economy? Uh, Gautam, you want to take a first stab at that? Sure, yes. No, as you said, uh, scenarios is the key word, uh, Oliver, because there's still so much uncertainty about how the future might unfold. Uh, I think what the McKinsey team has been doing is to explore a range of scenarios around both the disease and the nature of the response from the health authorities and the fiscal, on the fiscal side. We also had a chance to consult with almost 1,000 leaders, including several economists and financial market experts. At this point, I think we see two sets of scenarios. Uh, if the lockdown were to continue in roughly its current form, followed by hopefully a gradual release of uh, some of the supply chains and economy slowly coming back on its feet, uh, you know, we could see this financial year at a negative of 2 to 3%. Uh, just to put things in perspective, that could put about 30 millions of uh, lives, uh, jobs at stake. You know, India has about 500 million people in the workforce, of which half of them are in the non-farm. So about 30 million of those in this scenario could be at risk. There is another scenario where as the economy comes out of the lockdown, uh, you see a further resurgence of the disease as has been happening in some of the other international markets, which might necessitate more lockdowns and causing even more displacement of supply chains. 
And in that scenario, we could see a negative GDP growth this year of 8 to 10%. Wow. And this compares, Gotham, remind us, to a pre-COVID growth of 6%, give or take. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, pre-COVID, I think it's important to note that India over the last 20 years has grown at 7%. So just to put a very... Over the last 20 years, has grown at 7%. If you look at the last six quarters, the growth had declined from a high of about 8% to the last quarter pre-COVID had fallen to about 4.5%. It's fair to say that the economy had been slowing down going into COVID. So compared to, well, what we're talking about here, it's nothing in comparison to the past. The other thing to note is that in the worst times we've had in our history, 1991 was the first major crisis that hit India. Our growth was 1%. So we had never seen anything in the negative zone in our history. And I think that just brings it to life what a complete change this is for a country like like India with a huge population that we talked about. So given that backdrop, Anu, what are some of the measures to stabilize and support household and businesses as they deal with these economic losses? How, how can India recover from these uh, predicted scenarios? Uh, so the two uh, really important constituencies which will need support uh, are indeed, you know, households uh, and workers on the one hand, and then a whole slew of businesses on the other, particularly in sectors which are seeing the most uh, output drops uh, and, and the slowest paths to recovery. Uh, now, on the first, as you think about, uh, you know, workers who are out of work and, and people who depend on them, uh, there's actually more than perhaps 100 million such, uh, you know, workers in the casual sector, right, who who will need direct income support to tide over at least this quarter. The government's made a good start with an early set of announcements around relief measures and the distribution of free food to families that need it, but we will need more than that. Uh, fortunately, India actually has invested in a very robust digital uh, architecture uh, uh, based on, uh, on Aadhaar, which is the unique digital identity that every Indian has. Uh, and as many as 800 million Indians actually have bank accounts which are tagged in some shape or form to their identity. So it's possible to reach out to millions, literally, of distressed people and directly transfer benefits to them. And that's a program that we feel uh, is quite important in the near term. Uh, the other piece is actually support to businesses. And here we feel it's really the MSME segment uh, and then large corporates across a few of the sectors that will need critical liquidity support. Uh, and the government can... And M MSME means what? Can you, what? What does MSME stand for? So MSMEs are micro, small and medium enterprises. And India's sort of in, in industry structure has a very long tail of many, many tiny firms and tiny enterprises. But even if you look at the more organized set of these, we look at all firms with $10 million plus of revenue in any given year. Uh, so these are not the micro end of the MSMEs, but they are uh, you know, small and medium businesses. Uh, and this is really a segment that, that is undergoing extreme uh, liquidity strain at this point. I mean, uh, their revenues have collapsed. Uh, many of them have, uh, you know, some kind of fixed cost base to keep running. Uh, and if they don't receive the liquidity they need to tide them over for a quarter or two, uh, we will see very large scale job loss. Uh, and therefore, I think what, what is important is to work out a mechanism in which uh, there's a lot of liquidity in, in India right now. So banks are sitting pretty flush with 
liquidity at this point. Uh, but of course, they are concerned about credit quality and whether they should be lending to stressed uh, you know, enterprises. So we need a mechanism to actually address the concern of the banks, but also get the liquidity across to these entities who need it so that they stand on their feet and are in good shape once you know it's time to reopen and rebuild the economy. Can you expand a little bit, Gautam was onto this earlier, that this is hitting different sectors quite differently. Can you just expand on that? I don't know who wants to go to first on this one, Gautam or Anu, but which sectors are more impacted, which ones are, are, are less? So uh, the segments or the sectors really that are actually most impacted are the ones uh, uh, for for instance, and this is a common theme we see actually across many economies. India is not different in this case, but we have seen sectors like, of course, airlines, uh, hotels, and anything to do with travel. Uh, we've seen sectors like construction and real estate, which have got hit very badly, and work has actually, uh, you know, reduced to the extent of seventy or seventy-five percent in many of these sectors. We've also seen power, textiles, and logistics with 50 to 55% drops in output. Uh, so these, I would say, are the most affected sectors. And then there are a set which are relatively less affected with perhaps quick upsides even possible. And this would include uh, you know, the whole pharma sector, for example. It would definitely include IT and IT-enabled services. Uh, you know, telecom for obvious reasons with the big surge in digital consumption that's actually taking place. Uh, and on consumer and retail, so consumer products and, you know, retail uh, as a segment, we've actually seen a two-part story, right? Actually, the consumption of essential goods, uh, you know, food, for example, um, uh, and, and other kinds of essential services, this has remained quite steady in India, because even through the lockdown, essential goods and essential services were kept open. But anything that's discretionary, where consumption can be postponed, so people are, haven't been going out and you know buying new clothes or buying electronics and so on and so forth. So we've seen discretionary consumption actually drop 50 to 55% uh, in, the, in, the, in the lockdown and through the current quarter. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Um, I'm going to shift topic now and I'm going to start looking forward. Um, and the next phase, and I know that, you know, there's been talk about when, uh, about reopening. So Anu, how can the lockdown be carefully reopened while managing the, uh, the infection risk or the reinfection risks even? Now, this is a conundrum that many other nations are grappling with. Anu? Absolutely. I think like many other nations, we are also figuring out that in some ways it's easier to lock down than to actually reopen with enough care on the health side, as well as enough confidence in terms of the various actors who actually need to go out there not least of whom are actually consumers who need to feel comfortable enough to you know be out out and up and about in addition of course to workers businesses local government authorities uh, healthcare workers and so on so it's actually uh, it's it's actually quite challenging in india we find that a very granular localized approach is going to be required uh, India has some 700 or more districts, which are the smallest uh, level of uh, administration, so to speak. Uh, and of these 700 or so, about 130 districts 
are called red zones. They're classified as red zones by uh, the Ministry of Health. And these red zones have relatively higher infection rates uh, uh, and, uh, you know, relatively higher growth in infection. Now, uh, unfortunately, or, or almost, uh, I suppose it's to be expected that a lot of the red zones are actually the big cities of India. You know, they have the most dense population and so forth. So they also account for as much as 40% of India's GDP. It's in these 130 red zones. Uh, and within the red zones, the most, uh, you know, the biggest cities are actually a good, you know, one third then again of, of, of the GDP of the red zones. So opening up the top 20 to 25 cities in a way that's very calibrated, that actually uh, serves to isolate and lock down the pockets of infection, the so-called containment zones within these cities, which are pockets of cases. So we absolutely need to continue managing them very actively and isolating, but the rest of the city or the rest of the district needs to be carefully opened up with the right protocols in place. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a job that requires, I think, a huge amount of agility and interpretation of what's allowed and what's not allowed and real confidence building on the ground in terms of what you can do, both for businesses that operate there as well as you know, local government authorities who have to make these calls on an hour-to-hour or day-to-day basis. Uh, so we are going to need that kind of capability, and hopefully we will learn very quickly, uh, but it's going to be uh, quite challenging. And just to put this into context, we're talking about India with 1.4 or more billion people, talking about reopening from lockdown for 1.4 billion people. I don't think there's any country that is even close to this level of of complexity and challenge when it comes to reopening. Gautam, I want to uh, shift topic and uh, talk to you about getting India back on the growth track. Uh, what do you see as some of the structural reforms that are needed to put India back on track, so to speak? So, Oliver, as you often say, they never waste a crisis. And I think uh, that's where the opportunity lies for the country. I think we think to rebuild India and to get it back on uh, the trajectory that it deserves to be I think India will need to pursue structural reform on multiple fronts. Uh, let me just mention three, four of them. First is, I think, in the housing and the real estate sector. You know, for India to keep its unemployment levels to below 3%, uh, you know, over the next decade, India needs to produce about 140 million gross jobs. And if you look at that, about 40 to 50 million of those would have to come from the real estate and the construction sector. But that will not happen unless fundamental reform is undertaken to bring land prices down so that households become more affordable for more people in India. So that's one set of reforms to bring pricing down for land and uh, encourage construction in real estate. Second is really around make in India. As you know, the GDP manufacturing uh, contribution of GDP in India is down to almost 17, 18%. It needs to be about at least 5% higher. The global supply chain disruptions present India an opportunity uh, to compete uh, in many pockets that are opening up. But to become competitive, India needs more fundamental reform in energy, labor, logistics. Just to take an example of logistics, you know, logistics cost is 14% of India's GDP. By any standard, it should be 8 to 9%. To bring it down by 5% requires us massive reform. In railroad mix, we need a national strategy on uh, logistics and so forth. Third, I would say is financial sector reform. Many, many dimensions. 
uh, we have to overall increase the level of investment in the country. Real, real interest rates in India are about four to five percentage points higher than China. If you see why that is, one of the reforms that is needed is in how we think about priority sector lending. Uh, so some of the reforms around that, some of the reforms around making the banking sector more competitive. There are many dimensions to the financial sector. And finally, if I were to say disinvestments, as you know, India is a poor country uh, when put against global standards. And I think uh, fiscal deficit management is a challenge. We think there is a substantial opportunity to be unlocked through disinvestments of public sector companies and through monetization of a lot of valuable real estate and other assets that the government owns. So I'll just give you four examples of structural reforms that are critical to get the country back on the growth track. Thank you, Gotham. And, and frankly, there sounds like there's a whole, there's enough material to, to explore there for a separate podcast episode, to be honest. Just to put it in perspective, I heard you saying point number one, creating jobs. Um, you said we need 142 million jobs in the next 10 years. The U.S. today, the working population of the U.S. today is about 150-odd million people, just to put that into context, the challenge that we are talking about. These are formidable challenges. I'm sure execution of these reforms is not going to be straightforward. But um, Gotham, if you don't mind, I'm going to re-invite you to a different podcast to explore that topic. Um, rather now, can we just uh, spend, um, uh, continuing with you, uh, Gotham, uh, how, how do you see the global economic pecking order uh, changing post-COVID? Uh, if you don't mind me asking that. We hear a lot of uh, there's going to be a shift of the supply chains away from India to other countries, potentially India. Just explore that topic uh, a little bit for me. So I'll just make three comments. I think, look, firstly, if you step back, and uh, this goes back to pre-COVID-19, India has always been seen as the country that has the opportunity to become the third pole in a global bipolar world, right? So if you think about after the US and China, India absolutely has the potential to be the third pole over the next decade. Having said that, as we see what's happening now, I think uh, it, there's no doubt that uh, the world is looking at diversification of the supply chains away from China. Uh, but I think it can play out in two ways. Uh, one, I think, uh, as you well know, there's been a lot of discussion around deglobalization. And I think some of this is going to happen as countries become more protective and more and more companies are going to look at opportunities to shift things onshore. Uh, I recently read about a piece, piece of work about Japan announcing a $2 billion war chest to support companies relocating production back to Japan, which I thought was interesting. On the other hand, I think you are going to see supply chains shifting to other low-cost economies. Just look at what has happened to Vietnam. Uh, as you well know, in your Asia role, I think Vietnam has done a wonderful job of, of, of really going from a current account deficit to a massive current account surplus by positioning that country as a favorite destination for uh, electronics manufacturing. India has such pockets. Uh, look at what Bangladesh has done in textiles. I think if India were to replicate some of those playbooks that Bangladesh has implemented in textiles and Vietnam has implemented in manufacturing, we think there is the potential uh, to actually uh, do a lot more manufacturing of things like uh, auto components, electronics, electric uh, assembly, medical equipment, and by doing so become more relevant. Thank you, Gotham. Anu, I want to shift to you. One of the uh, collateral outcomes of this crisis has been the pace and reach of adoption of technology. You know, be it working from home, classroom from home, online banking, e-commerce, and, and what have you. 
Uh, where, where do you see this headed long-term, uh, Anu? I think this is a, a very strong and powerful sort of consequence, if you will, right, of COVID-19 across most countries. And India will be no exception. I think uh, there, there will be an accelerated push towards more digitization. Now, the really interesting part for India is that even pre-COVID-19, uh, India's economy and, uh, you know, people already had tremendous momentum on the digital front uh, with, uh, you know, as I said, 1.2 billion or more digital identity holders in the country and maybe 550 million odd, you know, internet subscribers, you know, 350 to 400 million smartphone users. So India was very much in the top two or three or even number one in many cases on many aspects of digital penetration, digital adoption and usage on the consumer side. Uh, and, and indeed, one of the fastest growing, right, in a set of countries that we looked at. Uh, what's happening, I think, through this COVID-19 phase is that while, you know, the consumer was always ready and had shown that he or she was ready to actually, you know, adopt more digital services and products. Uh, I think what's happened in this phase is that businesses are really kickstarting the way they think about reaching customers or reaching each other in a B2B context. Uh, they, they, there are many sort of digitized business models that are uh, being tested and being uh, proven at, 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 at very short cycle times, right? Just because of you, you just ha you have no option when you're in a crisis. For example, you know, a pharma company has to reach doctors and then they experiment with how to do that digitally and they do that very quickly and prove that the model works. So I think the readiness to then adopt and actually implement more and more of these models is huge. What this could mean for India going forward is we had actually looked at, uh, you know, digital business cases and new disruptive business models across a range of sectors, not just the traditionally digital ones like uh, IT or, or telecom, but uh, including, uh, you know, uh, across financial services, but even in healthcare and agriculture in logistics, for example. These collectively, we felt, could contribute something like, uh, you know, almost a trillion dollars of incremental productivity savings and efficiency for uh, the Indian economy by the 2025-2030 period. So we think that this will just get a huge boost in some sense with what we've been through in the COVID-19 phase. So what you're saying, Anu, is basically that one of the effects of COVID is to accelerate a number of trends and, and that we have already seen. It's just going to accelerate these uh, even more than, uh, than the past. Is that right? That is correct. That is absolutely correct. It's going to accelerate these because many things are being tested and innovated now. The, the sheer speed and rate of innovation is, of course, going through the roof now. And digital is playing a very important part in this process. Gautam, let me ask you a, a, a final question. As you look forward into the next normal, what are the couple of things that strike you? What, what, what is the next normal going to be characterized by? And, and are you personally looking forward to it, if I may ask? Well, thanks for asking, Oliver. Actually, to be honest, I think I'm still imagining what the, what the next normal would look like. Uh, I've had a personal note. I hope that some of the great things about the current reality, i.e. reducing some of the mindless travel, will be something I'm actually looking forward to. I'm also looking forward to, frankly, reconnecting with uh, colleagues and clients, uh, which has been uh, something I've been missing. But I think if I think more broadly, uh, you know, what's interesting is how I think companies are thinking about uh, the next normal. 
The other day, we had one of the top three IT services companies uh, in India, which has about 300,000 people globally mentioned that they expect to have 95% of the people continue to work remotely for the next two years. Not next two months, but for the next two years. I thought that was fascinating. Uh, I had another company mention that they've been running their plants at 90% capacity with about 30% people, which also shows you how much productivity can be unleashed and uh, how much companies have been forced to innovate to get prepared for the next novel. Uh, and I think uh, I'm looking forward to, I think one of the things that excites me is India is also one of the fastest digitizing countries in the world. And I think in the next novel, I think India could become uh, an innovator for how technology can be used to meet a lot of unmet needs. You know, I know talked about health needs, but you can think about health, entertainment, education. And I think that could be quite a, quite a fascinating new world. Um, some parts of which I'm actually quite excited about. Thank you, Gautam. Same, same question to you, Anu. Are you looking forward to the next normal? Uh, at this stage, I find it hard to imagine exactly what the next normal will, will be, for example. I think it's going to change a lot of basic things for us at many different levels. Gautam talked about the business level, but even at the personal level, if you think about uh, you know how we're going to be as families many many Indians actually of course have you know children who are studying overseas or need to move overseas to study you know how soon will that happen what will life for them look like on campuses in other parts of the world uh, you know closer to home how will you actually continue to care for uh, you know an older family member who may not be living with you and concerns about how how independent they can be going forward. So there are, I think, a lot of question marks, frankly. Uh, certainly, I think what I embrace and love is this notion. I think two things. One is, as Gautam said, the notion of we are ready to innovate and try different things. We're not afraid to do that. We will do that, right? So the digital work from home is one example, but we're ready to innovate. And the second thing, as I said, is the way different constituencies have come together on solutions. Uh, I think I find that really inspiring and energizing uh, across the private sector, the social sector, and the government. So there's uh, tremendous energy we can unlock together. So that's what I look forward to. Thank you. Thank you, Gautam. Thank you, Anu, uh, for sharing uh, how India, what India is doing in, in, in the face of uh, COVID-19. I think the world has a lot to, to learn uh, from India here. I'm going to repeat one sentence that you said, Anu, which was that we are ready to innovate and try different things. And I think uh, India is doing that at scale. And um, I think the world has many things to observe and, and, and watch what happens and then uh, learn from, from there. Thank you so much for joining us today. And to the listeners, thank you so much for, uh, for listening in. Take care, everybody. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.